Welcome to a special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Christina Kwok, fellow in the Center for Universal Education in the Global Economy and Development Program here at the Brookings Institution. 2020 is going down in history. Australia, Brazil, and California have experienced record-setting wildfires. The Atlantic hurricane season is so intense that we're now running out of letters in the alphabet to name its tropical storms. And the UN's latest Global Biodiversity Outlook reports that we are experiencing an unprecedented rate of biodiversity loss, which is increasing the likelihood of zoonotic disease transfer, like the one that started our present pandemic. But amidst this destruction and loss is another side of climate change that we will hopefully see the year 2020 bring into focus for us. That is the struggle for climate justice. As the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to our attention here in the U.S. and other parts of the world, there is an underlying system of oppression and a historic structure of inequality that has made some lives, Black lives and brown lives, and the lives of Indigenous peoples and women experience the harshness of our shared society in unequal proportions. And this harshness has deadly consequences, all that climate change will only help to exacerbate. I'm joined by two guests today who will help us unpack issues around climate justice here in the U.S. and around the world. First, we have Justin Warland, who is a Washington, D.C.-based correspondent for Time, covering issues of energy and the environment. And second, we have Marinel Ubaldo, who is a climate activist from the Philippines and a former youth leader from Plan International. She's the founder of Youth Leaders for Environmental Action Federation and organized the Philippines' first youth climate strike in May 2019. Welcome, Justin and Marinel, to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us here and giving us the platform to share our focusing and start. So Justin, I'd like to start with you. In July, you wrote a really intriguing piece for Time called Why the Larger Climate Movement is Finally Embracing the Fight Against Environmental Racism. So I'd like to start our discussion by asking a few questions about this piece and particularly for our listeners who haven't read it yet. Can you maybe start by explaining what people mean when they use the term environmental racism? Well, so environmental racism refers to the disproportionate burden of environmental ills, pollution, for example, that tends to fall on people of color. And the reason why it's racism is because there really is a system, there are systemic issues that have caused this disproportionate burden. So in the U.S., these are things like redlining. These are decisions about where to site and build industrial facilities. And all of that results in poorer health outcomes and poorer quality of life, among many other things for people of color who live in the pollution in these facilities. And so how is the debate around environmental racism feeding into the climate movement? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I mean, in some ways, we want to go back and look at from really the 80s, 90s, there were two sort of separate tracks developing a movement to reduce emissions and a movement to address environmental racism or environmental justice as its cause. And they were sort of working parallel goals, but not really working together, in part because of a need to build a coalition. The two movements have kind of coalesced in recent years, and that has infused a focus on environmental justice in the movement to reduce emissions and address climate change in other ways. I think that's a great introduction. And this is where we can elaborate on that. In the piece, you write that COVID-19, which is killing Black Americans at twice the rate of their white counterparts, is in large part because of environmental issues like pollution caused asthma and heart disease, and that this has really only advanced the urgency for climate backers. 
So maybe can you talk about any ways that you're seeing this play out and sort of how that elaborates on your previous point? Yeah, so I would say that there's this change started to happen even before this present moment and the Black Lives resurgence and the Black Lives Matter movement, really going back to a couple years ago when activists were trying to come together and really build the ground for potential new legislation and a potential new democratic administration. But in these last few months, obviously the public attention has largely been about systemic racism, about Black Lives Matter movement, and that has fueled an interest in both discussions of the problem and legislative solutions to solve it. So you see things like Joe Biden, when he put out his climate plan, it's his climate and environmental justice plan, and it has huge attention to this issue. You see when the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis put out its legislative report on how to address climate change, they started with George Floyd and an extensive discussion of environmental racism. And so for at least among Democrats, who obviously are the party more concerned about climate change, this has really become central to the way they're talking about climate change. And that wasn't guaranteed. You look four years ago at the start of the Trump administration, a lot of the discussion was around carbon taxes and will they be revenue neutral? And that kind of discussion has really evolved. And it certainly has been aided by this moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly fascinating to see all these different movements kind of coalescing, as you mentioned, and really helping to bring some of the issues into focus when it comes to thinking about how environmental racism and historic injustices all with this pandemic and climate change are all coming together at once. Marinol, I'd like to turn to you now. You've spoken at the United Nations Climate Conference and at several other important venues around the world, and you've been even profiled in Teen Vogue, I think. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar with your story, can you tell us why you became so actively engaged on climate change? I have been a child facilitator and a child leader of Plan International because our area before was uh, a covered area of Plan International. And then I started from there in 2012. I was sensitized about climate change. That was the first time that I actually first ever heard of climate change. And then I went to communities, remote communities and schools to talk about the basics of climate change. So I was trying to educate people there on what are the effects, the causes, and the ways to mitigate, adapt to climate change. Because there are um, remote communities in the Philippines that they don't have any electricity or they don't have any access to information at that time in 2012. So we go there and we disseminate information. So we don't just go there and discuss. We also formed a little group of children. And then we do theater recitals. And then we also did a radio broadcasting and a lot of ways how to really immerse to the communities because a lot of them in the remote communities don't sometimes know how to read or how to write so our way was we were trying to target them in different ways so they could be aware of what is happening with our climate already and then 2013 happened and I realized that what we were talking in the sensitization about climate change, what we were talking in the radio broadcasting and all of those that we were doing in 2012 was actually already happening now. Because in 2012, we were addressing climate change as a thing that would happen in the future. But I realized when I saw the devastation of the devastation that was brought on by Typhoon Haiyan, I realized that climate change is actually already happening now and it is already being felt by the, a lot of people in my community, especially because my community 
is facing the Pacific Ocean. So we are on the front line of every disaster. And our community is the first one to be hit when there is a disaster. So I find it so important that we will really raise our voices, tell our stories, because climate change is not being fueled by the Philippines. It is being fueled by a lot of big corporations and the first world countries. And we are here to tell the world that climate change is real and it's happening. We feel it and we live by it every day of our lives. And we're trying to adapt because we don't have any choice, but really to adapt. We are hopeful because we don't have, again, a choice, but to be hopeful because or else we will be losing more lives. We will be losing more family members. We will be losing our future and our livelihood and everything that we were dreaming to have or to be in the near future. So your story is a stark reminder that environmental racism isn't just something that happens within a country like the United States, but that it has historic global dimensions to it as well. Its legacy manifests today as carbon colonialism, in extractive industries and corporations like you just mentioned that take advantage of indigenous and impoverished communities around the world. And it also manifests in the disproportionate impact and costs of climate change that are borne by poor communities in the global South. So I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about how environmental racism and the struggle for climate justice has played out in the Philippines. We have been struggling really to get an audience, especially from the first world country, to listen to us, to what we have to say, because the Philippines have been leading the fight for climate justice even before, way before. But because we're brown, because we're from the global south, sometimes it means that it's just so normal for us to suffer climate disaster or to lose more people or to lose our livelihood or to lose our homes because we're brown, because we're from the global south. But when it comes with white people telling like, this is climate change and all of that, sometimes they're being heard more than these people who have lived by the experience, who have this experience of a climatic disaster, who have lived through a very devastating effect of climate change. And even here in the Philippines, it's also true that even the indigenous people, sometimes their voice is not being heard. Their voice is very minimal in terms of decision-making in the national decision-making processes. And so what we're doing really in our power as the youth, as the hope of the nation, uh, here in the Philippines, we're trying to be inclusive and we're trying to really get those indigenous people get their voices so that they will also have a say on the decision-making processes in the national level. So we're kind of trying to unite every youth in the country so that we could have a youth declaration to be sent to the Malacanang or to the president's office so that they would know what is the call of the youth in the Philippines, not just the youth from Manila or the youth from Tacloban or the youth from other urban communities, but also the youth from indigenous communities, from marginalized communities, because we want it to be more inclusive because it is not just us being affected. It is mostly affected are those the indigenous people. Thank you. And Justin, I'm curious if you hear any parallels with what Marinola is saying around really trying to create the space for inclusive participation by, in the Philippines case, indigenous communities and marginalized communities and how that sort of plays out in the U.S. as well. Absolutely. That's been a big focus of the conversation as of late. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the stories are really the same in lots of ways. And I think 
One thing that I tried to do in my work is I talk a lot to people in the global south and developing countries, small island developing states, about what their experience is with climate change and how they're both addressing it, bringing in different groups to form coalitions, and also how they're facing some of the impacts. And I think it's really interesting because I think to Marinelle's point, there are a lot of people who just dismiss, these are poor countries, we're not going to feel the same thing, they have a different situation, but actually they're ahead of us. They're dealing with the impacts earlier, and they're also innovating, innovating, I say with air quotes, but they're coming up with ways to build coalitions and address it in a way that we could learn from here as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely get to some of that in a little bit later in our interview. Jumping back to Marinol, part of my work at Brookings examines the intersections of girls' education and climate change. And I couldn't help but notice that the UN's recent Global Biodiversity Outlook called out, and I quote here, the failure to account for the role of girls and women as a significant barrier to progress on our biodiversity goals. And before you became a climate activist, you worked on issues of children's rights and girls' rights. So I was curious, what has your work on girls' rights illuminated for you about the connections between the struggle for gender justice and climate justice? And why is this failure to account for the role of girls and women so critical to addressing the climate crisis? It is so connected, you know, and it's so interesting how connected they are because in my experience during climate disasters, the girls are actually the one who are being left out. Like uh, there will be a disaster, so the school will close or the houses will be washed out and everyone goes back to zero. And the first person that would go to the school or would have the opportunity to pursue schooling are mostly the boys. So the girls are actually being sent to bigger cities to work, to be a sales lady, to be a housemaids, or some of them are becoming prostitutes because uh, there is still a conservative thinking that the boys should be prioritized in giving more opportunities because they have more capacity to achieve in their lives, which is wrong. And then during disasters, there arise of incidents of rape in evacuation areas because a lot of evacuation areas don't have a gender-sensitive rooms or gender-sensitive comfort rooms where women and girls could go to. So they just are in the same comfort rooms or there is no room for mothers who are breastfeeding, which is very important because in evacuation center, most of the evacuation centers are outside the area. It is far from the area. So sometimes it doesn't have any electricity. So sometimes the council or the community leaders bring generators and water. And there is not also privacy for women to do our things. So that's really how connected it is because there is a great gender injustice when there are climate disasters. And in order for to really push for climate justice, we also have to get what are the best thing to do to address the gender issues. Because, of course, women are the first one, they are the marginalized. We are the first one to be affected when there are disasters. And we have needs that has to be addressed. And it is not being addressed when there is a disaster. And we are the one that is being left out when there is a disaster. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you point to not only some of the existing inequalities that are created when facilities and services are not gender sensitive or gender responsive, but then also some of these deeper underlying gender inequalities because of social norms, gender norms, patriarchy, all of these different sort of structures of power that shift and change when you have an emergency and become exacerbated, right? You mentioned some interesting things here around how disasters and emergencies create and exacerbate further these injustices. And I turn over to Justin now to think about a piece that you've written recently that really helps to put into conversation our current COVID-19 pandemic and schooling crisis and economic crisis, really thinking about the connections between education and climate change, and in particular, the debates around reopening schools and how some of the struggles that countries today are facing around reopening, although in the U.S. we've already reopened schools. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about this connection and why we should be really paying attention to this year's back-to-school conversations and how this plays out around the world. Yeah, to the point we were talking about earlier, this story really, for years, I sort of had this lodged in my brain that when I would talk to various leaders and officials from a lot of developing countries in the global south, they would bring up education as one of their concerns in relation to climate change. And it was striking to me because it kept coming up. And it's also something that's sort of counterintuitive. And so that was there, it was in my head, and I hadn't written about it. And then this whole debate about when to reopen schools, how, it really just brought my mind back to a lot of the conversations I had with some of these officials over the course of several years. And so the point, I think what we should take from that here is that this is really feels a lot like the kind of discussion that you might have after a climate disaster or after a series of climate disasters. How do we make the classroom safe? What do we do if we don't have enough teachers to return to the classroom? The list goes on, right? But it has the exact same sort of feel. And then, you know, when you dig into the research, the links between climate and education are really rich and interesting and terrifying. So, I mean, there's the obvious, if there's a climate disaster, how do you recover from that? But then there's research about temperature and how does that affect learning? If you don't have access to air conditioning, it can be a lot more difficult to learn. You get into connections, gender-related questions, as Marinelle was saying, if there's a disaster and family can only afford to send one of their children back to school, chances are it's not going to be the girl and that's going to affect gender disparities in education. Yeah, and I'm curious from your research too, this is definitely on a personal level, given my interest in this area as well, what you found to be some of the most pertinent lessons that other countries have sort of learned from reopening conversations that could really help position countries that have long thought that these issues are far away (laughs) for them to really need to come to terms with in their thinking. I think planning, this is the thing that a lot of countries, they may not have the resources that a place like the U.S. has, but they are able to get ahead of some of these challenges by having a plan. And for a lot of these countries, the development of these plans is about going out and looking for resources, trying to get funding to adapt. But doing that work to plan ahead and then being able to implement that plan when the crisis strikes is a huge aid. That said, it's still a challenge. That would be my tidbit for U.S. policymakers. Yeah, absolutely. I know that there are several groups in the U.S. really trying to 
grab the U.S. attention in terms of its need to create what the UNFCCC calls Action for Climate Empowerment and really create an Action for Climate Empowerment national strategy. And that not only deals with ensuring that concepts that like climate change are taught in schools and, and non-formal and informal environments, but also thinking about some of those resilience planning aspects in terms of how do you respond to disasters and climate-related disasters. As you pointed out, in many parts of the world, these education disruptions that we presently are seeing because of COVID-19 are an everyday reality, especially in places that are experiencing these kinds of climate-related disasters on a much more regular basis. And this is especially the case for the millions of -of out-of-school girls and boys who already face educational disruptions as part of their existence. But on the other hand, youth around the world are really leading the charge on climate action at the same time, right? Marinel, you have been a youth activist since you were 16, I believe, right? Or even earlier than that. So what have you found to be effective in teaching people about the urgency of climate action? Yeah, I find it really effective when we teach more people about the climate change. Because in my experience here in the Philippines, when I talk about climate change to people, even those older than me, they don't know about climate change. Even those communities who have this intimate relationship with the environment, they are relying mostly on the environment. So they witness how the environment is changing, but they don't know what is behind that change. They don't know what's the reason for that change. So when we talk about climate change, that this is the causes, this could be the effect, this is how you will be affected. Here in your community, they're surprised and they don't know that it's actually, there is something called climate change. And that is, for me, education is really a great tool to really effectively and efficiently to advocate for climate justice because a lot of people now are really raising their voices because they have been awakened of the issue. I mean, thanks to Greta for getting all of those attention because before we were already trying to get more attention and now even those people who kind of hate Greta know already about climate change, which is good because even though they are kind of trying to deny it, at least they're researching, they are aware that climate change is there, but there is still trying to deny some things maybe because they're afraid of losing their privileges. But yeah, for me, that is really to effectively advocate for climate justice and to really address climate change is to really go to the grassroots and educate them about climate change. Great. Yeah. And I think part of what you're saying, too, is that the whole fight for climate justice is a struggle of power as well. I mean, you're trying to not only capture the attention of folks who, if recognizing climate change for what it is, means that they have to let go of some of what they do and some of what they believe and value, right? And this is particularly when we see the values and actions of powerful groups, powerful corporations that might minimize the value of the lives and well-being of those with less power, So I would love to hear your thoughts on what you've learned from your own work and from your conversations with other advocates around the world about this struggle of power. I'm blessed that I have been able to connect with a lot of climate activists from other parts of the world because we know from what is the issue in their countries and what is the issue in our countries because climate change will be affecting us all in different ways. And it is so important for me to know that what are the issues in the other parts of the world and what are the issues here. So the power dynamic because we're just children, we're just youth, and sometimes 
politicians and leaders are saying that we don't know what we're doing. And we actually have to learn more to go to school and learn more because we don't know what we're doing, which is kind of, for me, insulting because we will not be in the streets. We will not be calling for climate justice if we see our leaders doing something about it. I mean, come on, that's for our future. You will be maybe gone in 50 years or in 20 years or maybe 10 years, but we will be here burying our child or reaching our dreams and you are depriving us of that privilege or luxury to reach our dreams because I mean, I'm just 23. I have still a lot of things that I want to achieve in my lifetime. And I still want to have my family. But because of the inaction of our government, because of inaction of our politicians and our leaders, I am still thinking of, I will not have the luxury anymore of reaching that dream because in 10 years time, maybe I will just be busy surviving climate disasters or maybe just taking more action so that we will be more heard on our decision-making policies, even in just the national level. Thank you. Justin, I'm curious for you, how has the issue and the sort of the struggle for power emerged in your conversations with folks and communities around the world, including the U.S.? This is a central question about why haven't we tackled climate change? Because there's a lot of powerful interests that are opposing it. I mean, that's certainly one of the reasons. And, you know, I mean, it goes back to the conversation we were having about environmental racism and the need to build a powerful coalition that can really fight powerful interests. I think we're at this really interesting moment, and it's a moment conversations in the U.S. and also around the world where we're going to see whether these coalitions that have been building over the years can actually change the course of things. And there's some reason to believe that that might be the case. And you're also seeing the change, certainly the fossil fuel interests, a loss in power. I mean, they're weak. And an acknowledgement from other powerful interests that maybe they need to change in some ways. And at the same time, you have this growing movement really around the world. So it's really an interesting potential inflection point. Yeah. I wonder if you have any examples of how Marinelle spoke about really the need to empower grassroots communities. How have you seen that come out in this struggle for power, really trying to return some of that power to those who have had their power taken away from them? Right. I think one thing is around the world, I think there's an interesting growing movement to put youth voices, to put the voices of people on the ground who are facing some of these issues at the center of policymaking and sort of decision-making. So I'm working on a story right now about Poland and about the transition away from coal in Poland. And the way that they're approaching this issue, they're getting funding from the EU to transition. But what they're doing is they're starting in the town. They're talking to coal miners in the town, on the ground, and they're sitting together and having a conversation about what is it that we need? What are our challenges? And will that allow us to have buy-in to whatever solution ends up happening rather than the reverse where you have the EU saying, here's how you're going to spend your money. And so that conversation is happening here in the US. It's a part of a lot of environmental justice programs, like the actual meat of a lot of those policies are about empowering frontline communities, having conversations about their needs, allowing these frontline communities to not dictate, but to have a say in the policies and the funding that's coming towards them. And I think that's something that's been missing because climate change has been this abstract thing and the average person doesn't understand how it affects me. But if you're sitting there in the room having a discussion about 
shaping policy, that really changes things. And we'll see. But I do think it's a game changer. And it's something that's happening around the world. Yeah, and I'd love to now turn maybe to the U.S., since we have been speaking quite a bit about how sort of climate injustice plays out around the world. 2020 has great significance for us here in the U.S. In addition to the current climate crisis, we have a U.S. presidential election in less than two months. Justin, you've written quite a bit about the Trump administration's lack of leadership on climate. And over the summer, you had a big story pointing out that 2020 is our last best chance to save the planet. So from your perspective as a reporter who's spoken to the world's top leaders about climate change, how is the Trump administration's lack of engagement being perceived and how is it hurting global momentum? Yeah, well, I would say there have been phases, right? So when Trump came into office, there was sort of this initial international, is he for real? Is he actually going to do some of these things that he said he would? And there was some pushback. And then he did, you know, he sort of went ahead and did the things he had been promising. And then leaders sort of took a step back and was like a don't poke the bear approach. We're not going to try to antagonize him. We're not going to try to push him. And at the same time, countries continued to say we're doing the same things that they were doing before without any sort of aggressive steps forward or, or few and far between aggressive steps forward. And now we're in this interesting phase and you're starting to see glimpses of it. I think about in the EU, for example, where there's a new tone of maybe willingness to antagonize a little bit. And certainly, I think if there's a second Trump term, that would be the case. I referenced the EU. The EU is planning a border carbon tax to penalize places, countries that aren't reducing their emissions. You know, that's pretty directly targeting the US. And that's a change in dynamic. But yeah, I mean, I think for the last several years, what we've had is a period of static Few countries are really moving back in the other direction, but the U.S. has been a necessary component to really drive things forward, and that we just haven't seen. And I'll just say finally, because you asked what are leaders saying, I mean, I think most leaders won't want to say anything on the record, but I think it's hugely frustrating, and that's the sentiment that you hear. It's like you kind of throw your arms in the air because what can you do? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the sort of sentiment that many around the world felt when some of these policies or these promises became practice. So you've also looked at vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris's environmental record, and you've pointed out that her resume doesn't naturally fit the climate champion mold, but yet she's become an ally to the climate movement. She put the issue of environmental racism and climate justice front and center on her climate agenda. And so I'd love to hear what you think about that and what you learned about her as well. Yeah. So I'll just say when I wrote that she doesn't fit the climate mold necessarily, what I was referring to is, you know, her legacy as an attorney, as a prosecutor. There, of course, is movements to try to push policy through the courts, but that's been secondary, mostly secondary in the U.S. to other avenues. And so that's what I meant by that. But what I think is really interesting is when she entered the race, she, for a lot of climate activists, was kind of a dud. They were just another politician. She didn't really have a climate agenda. And I actually saw her on the trail in Iowa. She gave her 20-minute stump speech, got a question, and then said, oh, wait, wait, also the climate crisis is existential and we have to do a lot about it. So this was a secondary concern to her. But then she really received a lot of pushback from activists and she responded to it, right? And I think one of the things that activists said in the last month after her selection was she listened to us and that's really important. And I think it's especially important, you know, just to what we were saying, if you want to build a coalition, if you want to build momentum, 
you need somebody who's going to listen and actually engage people. And, you know, and when she came out with her climate plan, it had some elements of her own history regarding prosecuting fossil fuel interests, but also was really responsive to the conversation that was happening among activists and among others who are concerned. Yeah, wonderful. I think for sure there's a lot of hope in the agenda that she's bringing forward. So I think we all probably all agree that 2020 has been quite a difficult year, especially for momentum in addressing climate change. So I'd like to maybe end on a more positive note, but rather than asking you what makes you hopeful, I am curious what keeps you fighting for the fight for climate justice? Because it can get tiring. I would just say, from an admissions perspective, there's this quote that struck me from Ho Sung Lee, who's the chair of the IPCC. And he said, you know, every bit of warming matters. And what he was referring to was keeping temperature rise below two degrees Celsius. And it's very likely that we're going to blow past the 1.5 target, past the two target. And this is really disappointing and scary. You know, at the same time, every bit of warming matters. And we're about to enter a world that is climate changed. And yet it could be worse when that comes to justice, that comes to emissions. In every way, it could be worse. And so let's just hope it doesn't get worse. And let's try to work to make sure it doesn't get worse. And that's what I keep thinking. As bad as it is going to get, inevitably now, it could get worse. And so we have to do what we can to stop that. It's so hard to still keep on fighting. But, you know, when you see the IPCC report, if you see a lot of our leaders not doing anything about the climate crisis or just denying the fact that climate change exists or even just trying to play safe, it's just so disappointing how these leaders don't represent its people, especially like here in the Philippines. But what keeps me going and what keeps me motivated to still fight is really how the image of how my community was before when Superdiffin Haiyan happened. I saw dead bodies. I saw how our community has been devastated. I saw how our house collapsed. I saw how many people just flee and they just, uh, some of them, they were suicidal. And the scenario of that, after Superdiffin Haiyan, we were just trying to cope up. And we were just trying to, we were struggling to find food, to find water, to find shelter. Those are the sins that keeps coming on my mind because that's my biggest why. Why I even started with this fight. I just don't want to be vulnerable all throughout my life. I don't want to always think about what happens if there is another typhoon that would come. In the Philippines, we experience an average of 20 typhoons per year. And just thinking about it 20 times per year is already very exhausting and sometimes I just do not want to think about it anymore but I can't I can't just think about it because my family is in the front line of every disaster and in every typhoon they're being affected and every typhoon there are families that doesn't have a house anymore doesn't have any livelihood anymore and that keeps me going because if we will stop then we are just showing to them that they are actually winning I mean, here in the Philippines, it's so hard to be a climate activist. It's so hard to be an environmental defender because Philippines is one of the most dangerous places to be an environmental. Last week, uh, our friend's been killed. And just with that threat, 
their one of their aim, actually one of their purpose is just to shut us up. And we're not giving them that satisfaction. That's why we are moving on and we are fighting because a lot of youth actually now are being awakened and they know now what is the issue and how our future is being at stake if our leaders will not take action. My goodness, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today and for sharing your work and your passion and your insights on climate justice for our Brookings Cafeteria community. I'm really looking forward to following both of your work in the years to come, and I just thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Cafeteria podcast is made possible with the help of an amazing team of colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.